0: Today at the SCGI Directors in Dialogue, Director John Carney talks about the work of his favourite directors, the Darden brothers. Everyone, thanks a million for coming along tonight. Uh, you all know John. Um, it's great. Thanks a million, John, for coming Pleasure. this evening. John is going to talk to us about one of his many inspirations, the Darden brothers, and just to this is part of a, a group. Some of you are new here, so just to let you know, this is a part of a kind of a uh, an initiative we have called "Wash Your Eyes," which is basically sort of an expansion of the Directors Club, where directors get together and they show pieces of their work that have inspired other directors that have inspired them, and sort of just to sort of broaden the horizons not just to Irish film but beyond Irish film and what inspires Irish directors and their kind of vision and creative process behind other directors and how that feeds into their work for, for s- numerous reasons actually uh, I came to them sort of quite late in, in sort of what they had been doing in about 2005 and I watched this film Long Offont uh, The Child and uh, in the IFI and it sort of I didn't actually know much about them, a friend of mine took me along to see this film and it sort of, for some reason, it just hit me at a at, in a really gut level, um, and was something that I had sort of been looking for in cinema for ages, which was sort of, sort of the the, the opposite of what everybody was sort of into at the moment. <coughs> These guys are so incredibly uncool. There's not a cool bone in this film. There's there's no music. Um, there's no there's no sort of um, fashion. There's no set, there's no sort of aesthetic really or apparently anyway. Um, Sort of agenda so it's the very opposite of you know the sort of quentin tarantino thing or sort of avant-garde french filmmaking which was always very stylish and very cool and i think i probably was when i was starting off at sort of 16 or 17 with a little camcorder wanted to be sort of Truffaut or goddard or something and sort of you know cinema actually was to me was just simply a way of meeting women when i was 16 or 17. it was just mm-hmm. go up to beautiful women in the street and say yes so i'm a filmmaker i don't know if you're interested in being in my film which those sorts of films were full of sort of beautiful women and gorgeous sort of locations and Paris and brilliant music and you know, right? You've seen Godard and Truffaut films, I presume. <coughs> I hope, because <laughs> uh, I definitely grew up on that. And and and, I suppose around the sort of two thousand y period, cinema was really going through that sort of ultra ultra sort of cool, uh, you know, and and uh, thing. And I'm not sure why I re- responded negatively to that. I just wanted to find some sort of form of cinema that was really bare and really truthful and really honest. And for me, even films like Festin, which are, you know, and, and Lars Venture is a sort of a case in point, he's sort of very mischievous and very playful and very, but I, I find for me, it's just, it's all a little bit sort of too knowing and a bit too cool and a bit too smart. And, and so I saw this film and I was in tears at the end of it, uh, which is a rare thing for me, actually. I, I don't tend to get too weepy or emotional about films, and I sort of resist them. And I just found the way these guys... And then so I started to get into them, and I started to read, read more and more about them. And, and I happened to be making this film once, at the, sort of around 2006, and I was looking for... I was, I was saying, am I going to shoot this on tape, or will I get 16mm? Will it be handheld? Will it be... And I realized I was sort of asking all the wrong questions. I was sort of asking, I was sort of ticking boxes. I was thinking, what sort of film do I want to make? Do I want it to be sort of like a John Cassavetes American indie movie? Do I want it to be, you know, will I get tracks and a dolly? Or will it be handheld and a bit cooler? And I sort of realized, actually, that's not the way to make a personal film, is not to impersonate anybody, and is not to try and sort of form a little club of your own or a style. It's actually just to tell the truth and be yourself and to really persevere all the way through the filmmaking process from sort of early, early development right through into casting, shooting, editing, just be yourself. Because that, ultimately, I think what I've learned over the last couple of years, having spent ages, by the way, trying to fit into somebody else's aesthetic and trying to be like Woody Allen or John Cassavetes or, you know, know, rather than that, actually, what, what people in the end of the day, whether it's in... You know South Korea or it's in India or it's in Italy or it's in Hollywood, wherever it is, ultimately, and producers don't want you to sort of hear this, and they're, they're you know they're, they're all about groups of people and committees. people in, in a darkened room watching your film want to connect with one with one person basically at the end of the day. They want to be told a story that they feel is from the mind and the heart uh, and I don't mean altruism or something like that I mean actually that there's somebody who's taking responsibility for telling this story. And he or she is ultimately the director. And not to be cool, and not to be fashionable, or to, you know. And so when I saw these guys, this was sort of the answer to me, because you realize as you watch these films, for a while you're you're, you're being fooled. And I thought, OK, this is sort of, they've got a handheld camera, they're sort of out on the streets, it's all location shooting, it's real sound, doesn't seem like there's any overdubbing in a studio. Um, so there's no music, there's no cool sort of soundtrack to go with the film. And you, but you, you start, once you start researching these guys, you realize that every single detail is accounted for in their films. It looks like, for, for, the, for the first half an hour, it's very handheld, it's very close to the backs of the characters as they walk along. The clothes seem very real and like they've sort of, you know, it's a naturalistic sort of setting. And, and you start to realize, oh my god, every single thing in this film is planned and organized and deconstructed and broken down even just on an aesthetic and technical level um, there's nothing left to chance Ev- and you can see that every costume is just perfectly, perfectly picked it's not like a costume designer and normal an comes forward and sort of gives the director three options and the director goes, oh that one's kind of nice, which is what I do or what most directors do, they, these guys are totally, you know, they just talk for hours, you can follow their stuff online it's like they will talk for hours about a particular pair of shoes that they used in in this film or in a film, or a particular shade of jacket that for some reason they needed to get for this character. And I sort of realised actually that's what an audience wants to see. An audience wants to see specific, very, very specifically chosen uh, ideas and um, story points and and, and really try and connect with a a human being. In this case it's two human beings, they're brothers, they're Jean-Pierre and Luc Dardenne. And they're two Belgian brothers and they spent the first sort of, I think, ten years of their, their sort of creative years. I mean, the funny thing about them is they're, they're, they're sort of like my dad. They're greying, they wear shirts and ties, and they're incredibly square. I'm glad they're not here, actually, because I couldn't say all this stuff now. But they sort of, you, you, after you've seen their films, it looks like the films are made by sort of groovy young Parisians or French people, or <laughs> groovy French people. And they're actually these sort of very quiet... You know, you'd see them totally giving a philosophy lecture in university, or, you know, the real squares, Tweed Jacket, one and two, and, and yet they make these unbelievably um, emotional, heartfelt, hopeful films out of the most grim circumstances, and, and this very grim town in Belgium where they sort of shoot a number of their films. Um, and you sort of realise that you're dealing with two real, real committed artists and really sort of passionate... But quietly, sort of passionate film directors, which is such a rare, a rare thing. They don't talk the way I'm talking now. Or if you, you know, you watch film directors. Film directors are very flamboyant, invariably. They're very sort of extroverted and they talk a lot and they shout and they fire people and they're aggressive and they're passionate. These guys are just quite boring actually to watch. And you're sort of you can't connect them to the to the films that they uh, that you, they actually made, which we'll see some of tonight. Um, and I remember quite funnily actually, then um, when we were filming once we put, we had like 130,000 euro to make that film, which I don't know if you could, but that's a very sort of small amount of money. And I had saved up um, like whatever it is for this crane shot at the end of it, um, when I saw this film. And you know, I was getting the producer, Martina Ireland, and we said, let's keep that 10 grand to, to get this crane in, because I had this idea for this last shot, we need this crane, and we saved up every cent for it and we got it. And I'd filmed the scene that night and was looking at the rushes at home. And and I started to Google the Darden brothers. I was reading about them in a book or something, and there was a great quote about, you know, something like, um, that If in, in our budget, if we have sort of 10 or 15 grand left, we'd rather spend it on two days' workshopping with an actor than some stupid crane shot. And I was like, oh my God, I've got this film totally wrong now, and you know. Um, but they are like that. There's sort of, there's no... Um, the, the 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 sort of there's no fussiness visually about the film, there's never a crane shot, there's never a sort of a, a beautiful tracking shot. It's all about relating to the character and getting inside the story through the camera. That's what it's doing. But you'll realise as we sort of watch some of it that um that it's all planned and it's all structured. And that's what amazes me about filmmaking. And I love it when you see a film that you sort of think is one thing and you think is accidental and you realise, God, no, you know, everything here is, is sort of planned. that that's ultimately the filmmaker's role, it, and even if there are accidents, to turn those accidents into something that you're that you're in control of. So We're these. Then, go- sorry, to second. So just quick, one. you said yeah. they did something for ten years, did you? Oh, sorry. Yeah, got totally off. I'll do that. Yeah, good. Thank you for me. I'll just wander off onto on tangents of nonsense. They made documentaries for ten years in the seventies, um, and none of which I've seen actually. But I think I believe sort of from a cursory sort of. Um, sort of research into them that they were sort of kind of um, like they were socialist sort of you know social concerns and I think their documentaries were pretty much about sort of issues in their area and issues in this town and issues in France and Belgium and and, um, not so much political films but more sort of really interesting small uh, they were quite interested in Nazism they were quite I think their first um one of their first sort of drama films was about a family that was persecuted by the Nazis. Um, And then they sort of steered course and made very current films. But it's very interesting when you see their fiction films, um, how like documentaries they sort of appear to be. Now, they're not at all documentaries in any way, shape, or form. They're very, very serious-minded sort of dramas. But they do have, and there's a great story, but I think the film... I'm trying to see, it two films before this, I believe it is, actually, I think it's 1996, they made a film called Rosetta. Has anybody seen that film? Yeah. Rosetta is a, a, just, a, it's amazing, it? It's just like mind-blowing. I thought it was wonderful. And I, again, I work backwards. I've had a great sort of romance with these filmmakers because I saw them late, and then it's lovely to do. It's sort of like reading, you know, sort of Shakespeare and, and realising there's all this massive dearth of stuff, you know, stuff to read and, and to get into and explore in a... In a uh, in an artist's life. So I started to go back over their films, and then obviously Rosetta, which is a film about... God, it's very hard to say what it's about, but it's about this young girl who is determined in this very small, shitty town um, to get a job, basically, isn't it? To sort of get get this very small job, and for that to have meaning. She lives with her in a trailer park with her alcoholic mother. She she is oh it's unbelievably grim. There's brilliant sequences of her trying to cross this motorway, which lead to the trailer park that she lives in. This heart in a, in, a, in a flat, you know, half the size of this room, with this wretched female mother character, and it's about this young girl's sort of attempt to get employment at any <coughs> at any end, like by any means, and you know, with this incredibly. Uh, determined sort of sense of I'll find myself and I'll figure things out if I get this job which is basically in a waffle bar which they have all over Belgium and France you know that sell waffles on the street Um, but it's quite funny because there's now this a a bill was passed basically by this local Belgian (coughs) politician which was about employment and which was sort of making sure that what happens to Rosette in the film wasn't going to happen to a bunch of other people and it's called The Rosetta Law, after their film, which is pretty amazing, I think, as a filmmaker. And, and totally unintentional. They have no, and which is why I bring them, they're not really political filmmakers. They don't make these big, st- they're not trying to actually change the world at all. And yet they have, it's such a lovely sort of sort of um, indicator of how their films connect with, with your heart, that it would actually get into a politician's mind to actually call this The Rosetta. I mean, can you imagine a political, after the name of a movie, it's just amazing. Um, and I, I've always thought it's because they just connect on such a sort of human, such a human level, um, which I don't know if you if I if 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 you were to sort of compare them to anybody in England, I guess Ken Loach would be the sort of, but I've never found myself truly, I don't know anybody who's out, please contradict me on this. I've never found myself emotionally <coughs> connecting with a Ken Loach film. Has I, am I wrong or is, am I crazy? I've I've sort of absolutely loved the technique and I've been impressed by the acting and by certain aspects of the film, but I've never found myself genuinely sort of weeping or feeling moved by Does anybody agree with that, or does anybody watch Loach films? Okay, so how many (laughs) Loach films have we seen here? I don't know. Uh, Do you know what I mean? Kaz's. Kaz's, do you find yourself getting emotional with that? But it's sort it of like sad. a guy with a bird it's like come on, it's so it's so obviously sad it's sort of not sad to me if you were to take account, you know the and the bird and freedom and all the symbolism in it I, I I personally find for some reason myself sort of resisting his ideas a little bit maybe that's unfair I, I you know um but I love in this in this it's thing that a little bit right yeah 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 exactly whereas actually these guys are sort of they're, they're, they're above that they're really interesting sort of characters yeah. um so so they're kind of very um but certainly for me inspiration wise they were like i've often found um just at the right time when you're trying to make a film and you've sort of you've gotten a script or you've gotten the bones of it and but you still you just can't sort of put your finger on how you're going to make it you know what i mean uh and i remember finding that with our first film myself and tom hall um but then we went on and made Bachelor's Walk and a few other things together, but we were sort of, we had the script, which was like a 90-page script set in a house, and we didn't know where it was gonna go, or can you make a film with four characters, like a play in a house, and we were sort of scratching our heads about that, and we saw Faces by John Cassavetes. Does anybody know that film? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of like, ah, okay, that that's all I need to know. I just need to sort of know that this film exists in order to allow, not that we will ever make a film like a John Cassavetes film, but it's sort of, you can make a film in your basement with your rented camera from your mates for no money. And you can edit it on a steam back in your mate's house. or in, you know, And it can be quite good. That was the real thing with us of when we were starting out. Um, uh, at, is there any point in making a film sort of on high age with your mates, Michael McElhatton and Peter McDonald and your, your buddies who you know who are saying we want to be actors, but you're sort of going, we want to be directors. But you could all be just you know, numbskulls. Um, and when you see a film that you can sort of k- grip onto as a director, that, that means a lot to me. Um, because firstly, you can copy them. And secondly, it, ju- it just almost means like you've seen another human being sort of do something. It's, it's like that thing of, you know, once you go into the, into the sea for the first time every year, it's unbelievably cold, and it's terrifying. For some reason, the second time you go in, it's much easier. Because you know what it's like that time. It's like with a film, you sort of like, once you see somebody doing something creative, in basically the same circumstances, that you are, have arrived at, it's sort of now I can get my way in. And these guys are sort of a perfect case of point, in a way, because they, th- there's certain aspects of filmmaking that that that, that, that they do so perfectly. Um, <clears throat> they really made a lot of sense to me when I was sort of starting off making films or, or starting off again having made TV for a while. But i love to show you this mad scene. Um, and this is so insane. I'm going to what I'm inspired by recently, which is why these guys inspire me, really, is because I feel that they're being extraordinarily honest about what they're doing. And, and it's hard, in, a, in a, it's, do you know what, it's very hard in an industry where you do need money and you need other people to remain authentic and true because there's so much pressure on you to get the common denominator, to get as many people into the cinema, to appeal to as many people as possible. You have to start lying a bit because the liar and the person who's flamboyant is the one who gets the biggest crowd. It's the quiet person who's actually, yeah. who tends to, you know. Um, so, the, yeah, so, so inspiration-wise, I've, sort of, I've sort of moved from the, uh, you know, you know the, 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 that, the new wave stuff, or even Woody Allen films, which I found. I, again, I find Woody Allen to be one of the best filmmakers of his generation, like the way he directs scenes the way he framed them, the use of camera, use of music, was tremendous, like amazing. Um, and then I was into Scorsese for years, and uh, Taxi Driver, I, think. I did Films that also, you know, that sort of transcend. Like, uh, like, I have conversations with people about Martin Scorsese, and we're sitting around the pub talking about Taxi Driver, and really connecting, and then they'll say something like, oh, and fucking, uh, isn't The Departed fucking amazing? And I just go, you know. Or even Goodfellas, I just lose interest. Because to me, Goodfellas is fun. It's fun. It is fun. It's diverting. It's a bit of crack. But then there's Taxi Driver. and I don't understand sometimes how lacking in passion people are about cinema. And that they can just throw those films in because they're Scorsese. They couldn't get two more different films than Goodfellas and Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is fucking genius. Goodfellas is fun. It's entertaining. And that's it. It, It's Right? Does anybody agree with me or am I just totally on my own? There are certain films that are just up here (laughs) away from all (laughs) other films. And there's about ten films in that little... Star away from all the other films mm. of the world. What other ones would you put in this? What other films would I put there? Uh, Jesus, there's so few. Like there's so <laughs> few films that belong in that sort of magical place. That I tell you what, actually, you know, I know where I'm going. Is a great film by the by Michael Powell and Pressburger. That just is bizarrely. You put it on, and it's like it was made yesterday. It's fresh and it's it's the it's the it's the romantic comedy that every single romantic comedy is based on, but it was never set up as a romantic comedy, it was made back in the forties. Has anybody seen I know where I'm going, yeah? It's just like weirdly, wonderfully unhinged and just magical, magical film. That definitely belongs in the doesn't matter how many times you watch it, you just put it on, there's some new dimension to it. Um, there's a film called A Night A Night of the Demon. Did anybody ever see that film? Based by Jacques Tournier tremendous <laughs> film set in England made in England in the 50s about a demon and about a, a skeptical sort of guy who's trying to do an expose of a sort of a cult in England in the 50s uh, a sort of a devil cult run by this guy called Julian Coswell who's this great bearded sort of guy who believes in the black arts and stuff and uh, um, it's about this clash of these two sort of ideologies and, uh, and there's this demon in it and it's just one of those films that is just so beautifully made. It's a B-movie. It was made for nothing. Made for a very small amount of money. So directed at cat people. Say so again? Cat yeah, cat yeah. people, that guy, exactly. Uh, maybe something like Rosemary's Baby belongs in that world of just transcending cinema. It's like Fanny and Alexander definitely is one of those films that like, it seems like the camera was just rolling. And Paris, it just Texas or something like that. Paris, Texas wouldn't do it for me, but I know what you mean. It certainly is a, a very unique of there's nothing like it and, and that's the other key to making a film isn't it that nobody can say that it's like something else particularly and um he goes and he's, he, he sort of sells some stuff that night and gets a jacket for her and they sort of wander around from various sort of hostels and staying the night in places and they have rows and fights and they're amazing characters but he bizarrely sells the baby to this fence this this woman, who's his fence, tells him, you know you can get a lot of money for your baby nowadays. Uh, you can get, like, five grand, or you can get... And he sort of doesn't think about it, and then the next day, he's sort of... She's queuing at the dole office, and he just heads off with the baby to, to walk around it and he rings her, and he sells the baby. And he it's this elaborate sort of... He goes out in this bus ride out to this weird housing estate. He leaves the baby in a room, and he's told, he has all these incredible instructions, um, so you hate this guy right now but weirdly they, they create this film where you're completely with him and you're sort of scratching your head but you don't you, which I think is cinema at its best or certainly this type of cinema at its best is if you don't judge people things aren't black and white they're totally grey and multi 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 layered and, and it's like, that's like life right because when you look out your window and there's some guy I live on Harcourt Street and it's the most annoying place to live in the world because it's road from Copperface Jacks so at two o'clock in the morning, I'm trying to get to sleep, and there's two fucking lads ringing my doorbell at three o'clock in the morning. I have to catch a flight to America the next day, and I come out, and I'm like, I open the window, and I start, fuck off, what the fuck, you know? And they're like, no, we're trying to get in, there's a party on, like, we're, and I look at them, and, I, and I'm i just ready to throw water on them, and, I, and then I sort of get a bit of their story, which is that they're like, up from the country, they've lost their mate, they, This you know, and they think it's 75 Grafton Street, or, Camden Street and I'm trying to explain to them how to get across and they've woken me up and I should be really angry with them but you realize that one of them has lost his mate and he won't get home and they're genuine guys and but you know and just as a case in point it's just that thing of when you when you judge somebody immediately you get the story you you always get the story wrong there's no character that's truly really awful in life and, and no matter how annoying somebody can seem or how sort of amoral characters they manage to make these films in which you just accept what is going on with the characters and um, you just follow them and you, you absolutely see things from their sort of warped and very odd perspective sometimes but sorry to get on with the story so he sells his bait he, he trades the money and he gets five grand and he goes back to his girlfriend sort of expecting her to be happy that he's made money and she has shown herself to be such a bad mother already, or so inept, and he's kind of inept as well, that you think, as an older member, oh, she's going to sort of be okay with this too. And of course, her maternal instinct kicks in, and she blow, she actually faints. She, she is so shocked at this upheaval in her life, and that he would do such a thing, she just passes out. And he then basically realizes, I'm screwed, she's going to tell the cops... My girlfriend's going to, that's what she says when she's in hospital the next morning. She says, I'm going to, I can't believe you. He now has to sort of reverse this whole massive thing that he has started happening. So he has to get on his cell, mobile phone, get the fence. The fence has to then ring these people that you've never seen. They've all, they've worked in, in these shady sort of ways throughout the film. And he's got to get the baby back. And he has to unravel what he's set up in the first 20 minutes of this film. So it's sort of like a holly. To me, what's so beautiful about this film and bizarre is that it's sort of like a perfect Hollywood movie plot. If you spun it in a different way, if you said it's Wacky and Phoenix and such and such, now he's in trouble. He's sold the baby or he's done something and now he has to reverse. It's wonderful, sort of, you spool something up and then you just let the spool out and that's the film. So 25 minutes into the film, this guy is trying to undo all the shit that he has created as a fucking numbskull that he is. But in doing so, he has this incredible sort of adventure on the streets and with himself, ultimately. Um, and this is just one scene from this adventure where they are now. I think what's happening at this stage in the film is um, I'm not sure whether he's. He, I think he's still trying to get the baby back. But they. Oh, he spent some of the money, I think. And they want the exact amount of money back. I think it's five grand. It couldn't be 500. I think it's 5,000 euros. And he's. So basically, he's. he's, he's this guy is in school, the little red-haired guy, and he's got a motorbike, and they're going on the, they're going out to try and rob some money on the streets. Basically. What does anybody think of that scene? Yeah. Um, but that seems very clever. I'm, I haven't seen the movie, no, but that Yeah. But did anybody sort of emotionally connect with that? Yeah. Or what do you think mm-hmm. of it as a scene? I mean, to me, what's so amazing about it is that, like, uh, I mean, I guess you have to, I don't like taking things out of context, but, but, I mean, it's 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 in a you know, not to sound too sort of crude about it, but it's it, it's in what appears to be a arty, independently made, handheld, shaky, urban film. But I think that that sequence is is, is like a scene in Ronin or something, or in The French Connection on the bike. Mm-hmm. It's fucking amazing, mm-hmm. and it's uh, but the thing about it is, it's it's it just it's years and years and years of experience with the camera and with actors, that makes it look like they've just gone out on the rampage. It's so well planned. I mean, the pans off the bike onto the car, it's like... I guarantee if you're watching that scene in context of the film, you're on the edge of your seat. Like, you're so, so want them to get away. Even though, if you saw that scene in the street, you'd be the one chasing the guys on the bike, trying to get your woman's bag back. You're with them. You don't want them to fall off the bike. They look so precarious on the bike. The bike is so slow in comparison to the car, but it's, it's ripping up the you know the streets, and you just you want, you want them to get away, which is that Hitchcockian thing of like you know you know you want the murderer to get the lighter back, even though he's the fucking rapist and murderer, who's you know, that's perfect cinema to me, and they do it in such a way and it's so outer, it's so interesting in a film that that is you know a, a, a socialist sort of uh, you know left wing sort of you know film to have this basically this amazing sort of thrilling scene in which they're obviously that's quite real that water and that scene in the water you can sort of tell right that's that's that like the sound that that little boy is making it's like that cry that animal sort of cry through his throat like i don't think he can really act that but even the fact that they persevered with that they've gone because as a director i would definitely i would be lost if that scene came up for me in a a script i'd just be like on how to do this like who are we with or it says they go into the water but do I spend time doing that and they just know exactly No, no, go all the way with this believe me and I know you're only feeling it from about 20% because you haven't watched the whole film so you're not sort of behind it but in the the cinema you are with that scene 100% and you realise that only they could make those choices and those decisions to actually say no it's interesting to go under the bridge with them it's interesting to have them immersed in the water. And it's interesting to hold that shot for as long as you can, where they're holding on to the thing. And you start to, you know you know that thing in school that you, people punish you by putting your arms up for as long as you can't keep them up? You know, and soldiers doing stuff, you have to keep your arms up. Like that. And you'd be surprised how painful it is. And you, your muscles actually start to sort of go, you know when you're watching like a boxing fight and you tire with the fighter? You're watching on you know, Sky or whatever. It's sort of like that you're watching, you physically have a massive reaction to this film and not because they're shaking the camera around or they're you know it's not like a sort of a a film which forces you to look at ugly stuff and therefore makes you sort of have a nervous reaction to it it does it through just just knowing where to put the camera knowing how long knowing when to ask an actor to sort of push himself or herself to the limits uh you know it, it, it's wonderful and it's sort of a like, it is like something the french connection isn't it those scenes in the the car and the, and the bike. And again, it's quite funny, actually, because earlier on, when the, when, he bring, when she brings the baby home, uh, he borrows that bike. Th- this guy borrows the bike from his kid friend, and they go all the way across town on that little horrible 50cc thing without helmets, and it's a beautiful shot. I won't bother to get it get for you, because it's really just a shot, but it's a, it's a side-angle shot, like, like that one sort of pissing along these streets. And the two people are, he's, he's riding the bike, and she, she's gorgeous, actually. She's behind him, but she's got the baby, which is like, it's, it's like, and it's like Jesus. It really is like Jesus. And she's holding on to it, and it's the most precarious family shot you've ever seen in your life. It's this, this like, you're just looking at them going, oh my God, this is the worst family in the most precarious situation. Mm-hmm. And I really care for them. I so don't want the baby to fall off, fall off the bike. I so don't want this to go wrong. And, and you, you, it's just like, it's a magic trick. You don't know how you're feeling so strongly for these characters. And I remember, just incidentally, like the crane shot story I was telling you earlier on, uh, when we, again, on the same film, on this film with Glenn that we did, where we went out and we were up around Hoth, and I had written a scene, like, really, na- you know, cl- classic scene in a film, is if, like, because it was all set in town, I want to take these characters out to the country for a day, you know, just to get a bit of a break. Um, oh, and I wrote in this thing about his dad has a motorbike, a beautiful old, you know, it was a Vespa originally, actually, and we changed it to sort of a a big old Triumph. And I just thought they'll escape to the country and go out, and it's sort of groovy, and you know, we we'll put a bit of rock music over, and it'll be a nice breather in the film. And we shot the scene, and it looked, you know, it looked lovely. And uh, I was reading a review in in some magazine the next day, or literally just sort of just after we'd shot the scene, and it was like talking about some crap French film that they had seen, in which was sort of a rock and roll scene of two people robbing a bike, a motorbike, and going off into the hills with a piece of rock music. And the reviewer, who I really like, I can't remember who it was, was basically saying, if I have to see the motorbike as another fucking example of freedom with a stupid piece of rock music in a film, I'll cut my wrists. And we were like, <clears throat> and we just <laughs> shot this and edited it into our film. Um, but, but, I, but I remember seeing this and sort of going, okay, that's how to use a motorbike in a film. Revert, flip it on its head, because in these, right, in these towns, ta- you, you know, motor motorcycles aren't escape. In in these towns, they're how you get back and forth to work, and they're too little machines, and you don't wear a helmet, and they're lethal. But you're driving along at sort of thirty-five miles an hour on this, you know, and it's 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 just so so brilliantly done. And technically, um, they're, I mean, on. Like, to get that scene of them on the bike for so long. And the health and safety and all that is, you know, (laughs) you just be thinking like, sort of. I don't think that they really care that much in a situation. I don't think they care. And they're probably, the other thing is they're probably quite powerful guys Mm -hmm. in their own way. They can probably, because I don't know how you do that in Ireland. Mm -hmm. I just don't know how you, you know. You just have to fucking do it and risk it. I mean, you could have done it ten years ago when, when Irish people were still sort of fascinated with film and were open to you know they did they stepped yeah. around your tripod as opposed to saying, Get off these streets Yeah. Um but absolutely I mean how do you and you the actors are doing it like there's no yeah. pretense about it. There's no green screen, there's no sort of seat, seat belts or low low loaders or any of yeah. that crap. And are they non actors or actors? Uh I've seen him in a, in a bunch of things now actually he was in um yeah in bruges actually he plays the skinhead guy in Bruges, the drug dealer guy or whatever um he's a really good actor i don't know they they did rosetta the one who plays rosetta whose name escapes me right now was a non-actor and she won best actress in Cannes. but i love looking at that scene and i go like you know this is no wonder this wins the pandora cam this movie like in a heartbeat what what are you gonna what is ever gonna beat this film at that mm-hmm. festival and they ra- they won it twice for Rosette and this which is a sort of makes them in a club of about five people in the world that won, won twice um, and, and they just like scenes like that to me are just like to make a film that's about so little that really could be written on the back mm-hmm. of a poster <laughs> chance, That that's movie directing to say you know to say, they set off on the bike, they robbed this handbag, blah, 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 to bring that to life to such a degree, it's like painting, like painting is just a scene that you walk past every day, but this painter makes you look at it for, you know, the rest of your life, and want to hang on your wall, and want to go and see it for a time, and it really is, it's taking life, which you so rarely see in Irish films, you so rarely see that thing where a little bit of Irish life is done really minutely, and, and observed, and and it's sort of, for me, It's it, th- these guys are the, the, the guys we need to be watching. You know, not american films, not groovy, cool, train-spotting or any of that shite. These these guys sort of know where it's at. I mean, is mm-hmm. that done on TV, in HTV? Or they... I think they shoot on film, but I don't know what that film is shot on, actually. No, maybe, you know, the use of video as well can render this sort of yeah. hyper-realism as well. Yeah, I, well, I think that, but they're different though as well because you sort of, you start looking at their films and you start to go, Jesus, no, th- this isn't handheld. That, th- it's handheld, but it's got nothing to do with it being a statement. Yes. And it's also it's not because it's easier. No. It, it almost seems to be like, it's like a painter choosing his paints or something. It's not like, you know the way nowadays a lot of film directors do go sort of like, uh, oh, this has to be handheld, like you see it in Steven Soderbergh movies, which pisses me off. Which he's got millions of dollars. Why are you doing it handheld? Because mm-hmm. it's shaking the camera, and you, you know, or like it's, it frustrates me no end when somebody makes an aesthetic decision uh, based on anything other than budget. That's the reason. The reason that you're handheld originally was because you didn't have the money to put down tracks and have a dollar. You were John Cassavetes or you were Jean-Luc Godard, and you just didn't have the time and the money to put down these tracks on the street. That's why you were handheld. They were trying to conceal that they were handheld back then. You can see them. The second difference is that 35mm handheld cameras were balanced in a very, very specific way so that they're beautiful to look at when they're handheld. A DV camera is very small. They're not particularly well balanced, so you have to be very careful about how you how you shoot them and I hate seeing people say oh yeah we want to go handheld on this one because it's artsy or because it's, it's that's bollocks you know go, go handheld because it, it suits your budget and because the finances that you have sort of force you to make a decision and stick to your decision do you know what I mean by that mm. um I know I sound a bit angry there but it pisses me off to see somebody like in their handheld, like what's your budget like eight million and you're like it wasn't the Born Identity or one of those born films yeah i mean that's slightly different because they're trying to get i guess a documentary crazy feel but i know Mm -hmm. what you mean yeah um no Soderbergh's the chief of that sort of bullshit Mm -hmm. for me he's the guy who's sort of like um the locker is handheld most of the time huh the hurt locker locker well again they're trying to make it look like news yeah yeah But you know it's just kind of a for me it was a bit kind of too easy covering the scene from 20, different, different, different angles. Yeah, I mean more in terms of the handheld being ha- handheld. Mean ha- being a buzzword for people. Oh, it's yeah. handheld. It means one thing. Oh, it's dolly. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean anything. No. Um, and I sort of think, yeah. I mean, I, I'm probably not expressing myself as clearly as I as I sort of like to there. And I don't mean that just if you have loads of money, you should always be locked off or on a dolly or a steadicam or. Um, I just certainly think that they, they, the reason why their handheld footage works so well is because of all these years of experience making documentaries. They actually, they're, they're thinking in a very different way from most people and where to put a camera and follow a character. That's an interesting question. No, they couldn't do what they do with tracks. That's why they've gone handheld. They haven't gone handheld out of a statement. They actually want to follow a character in a very sort of subjective way into many, many rooms mm. and onto a bike. and not, not that they're doing these long tracking shots. They do tend to do very long takes. But it's, it's only because they want to stay with the character to the very limits so that by the end of it, you do get that punch at the moment, at the end. Because you've been with the guy in, in a way that you could never be with him mm. with Dolly in tracks or a crane. You, you, you'd objectify him by coming back. You know what I mean?
1: It's We're,
0: handheld, I, kind of intimate. Yeah, handheld makes means you're here, you're on the guy's show. Mm-hmm. Like Lafice is another film that they make called The Sun. Mm which is another film I highly recommend you see, which the camera is bizarrely connected to the lead character. It is almost like they've built a rig, and it just follows him wherever he goes. And by the end of it, you know that character like your father. You know, you just know him so... And you've actually not got that much... He hasn't said that much. Mm. But he's like, you know, when you're a kid, and you remember your uncle or your granddad, and you sort of feel you know him better than anybody, but you haven't actually had that many conversations. He died when you were five, or whatever. It's sort of like that physical presence... Of a person, and to be able to get that on film to me is just amazing, and to warm to the character and the the costume and the the whole way the character, the wool, or the, you know that's really interesting filmmaking to me. Thank you for listening to SDGI Directors in Dialogue. For more information on the Screen Directors Guild of Ireland, visit us at www.sdgi.ie.